0: I have a little bit of a cold, so my voice is a little raspy. Hopefully, you can all hear me. Um, And it's just—it's nice to be back here at Labrie. I enjoy coming out here. Fridays, unfortunately, don't always work so well with my family, so I don't—I don't come out here very often just to listen. But it is uh, very—it's a pleasure to be able to speak again. Um, And one of the things I most appreciate about this space, and also. yeah, this, these Friday night lectures is the honest conversation, the back and forth, the deep questions, and uh, just the uh, vulnerability that is expressed here. Um, so I look forward to spending the next little bit um, having a conversation with you and sharing some of my thoughts. Uh, the title of uh, my talk tonight is Honest to God, and the subtitle or tagline. Uh, Making Room for Lament in the Life of Faith. Um, Before sharing why I became interested in this topic, I'd like to begin with a story. In 1998, an adventurous, resourceful, and devoutly uh, Christian family of seven, two parents and five kids, uh, they set off on a multi-day canoe trip around Massasauga Provincial Park. For those of you who know um, your Ontario geography, that's the eastern side of Georgian Bay. There's just thousands of islands in this, uh, on the eastern side of Georgian Bay. Totally beautiful. Uh, midway through their trip, a storm rose up uh, on the lake. Dark clouds, strong wind, thunder and lightning. Uh, pretty impressive storm. So the family sought shelter on one of the islands. They got out of their canoes and they just hid under some trees and just, rode out the storm. After the storm had passed, they came out of their hiding spot and they just admired the storm as it was uh, floating away. But as they were looking up at the clouds, a lightning bolt shot out of the clouds mm. and hit Jerry, their oldest son, directly in the chest. And he fell to the, to the ground, shaking. Now, Jerry's dad is a, uh, a doctor a GP, and so he rushed over to his son and pretty soon realized he wasn't breathing. So he started performing CPR on his his son. His son was 18 years old. And um, now this is 1998, so it's not like everyone had cell phones in their pockets. And they are a long way from any town or people who can help. So Jack, the second oldest son... Hops into his canoe and, <clears throat> and he starts paddling as fast as he can, but he's like three to five hours away from anyone else or any kind of help. Uh, Jerry died that day in the arms of his dad, and he was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And my wife had dinner with this family on the 10th anniversary of Jerry's death. I was a um, A pastoral intern at the church that they attended. And at that time, uh, they were doing pretty well, I'd say, emotionally and spiritually. But the thunder caused by that lightning bolt, uh, I think it's safe to say, is still rumbling its way through their life. How do you make sense of God and God's fatherly care as the scriptures portray God as One who is concerned, a father who cares for his children, after a lightning bolt experience like that. Needless to say, the church that they are a part of doesn't sing the song Indescribable by Chris Tomlin. If you know that song, you know it's a praise song that celebrates God as the one who is sovereign over all creation. And the second verse begins with this rhetorical question, who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? So, pretend you're a pastor, if you can. What do you say to a family that's kind of still grieving uh, the life of their son that, that died and, and just the trauma that that caused? It's somewhat, in some ways, it's strange that I've become interested in the topic of lament. Um, all things considered, I don't really have a lot to lament about in my life. I'm happily married. I'm the father of four wonderful young children. Um, I pastor a mostly delightful (coughs) mid-sized congregation on Vancouver Island. It's going very well. I have cried and complained my way through a few nights, but not really that many. Uh, So with respect to lament, I am still an outsider, not an insider. Some of you might be insiders. But a few things got me interested in this topic. First in university, I read a little book called Lament for a Son by Nicholas Wolterstorff. Uh, This book totally impacted me. Uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff is a philosophy professor and his son died in a mountain climbing accident when he was 25 and the book is simply Wolterstorff's journey of grief. So he's just journaling out his grief and his prayers and his relationship with God. And it's just so powerful. It really, when I read it when I was 18 years old, it just just killed me. Secondly, I became interested in this topic because I began to uh, research my own family of origin. So in seminary, uh, to become a pastor, I had to go into my family history and try to tell the story of my family, which was a good exercise. And I learned, well I learned, I already knew this, but I explored this more. I learned that, uh, or... When my when my dad was 13, his dad, who was 43, died of a heart attack. And my dad was the middle child of about six. And so he left, well, six children and my grandmother behind. And uh, I don't know exactly what the leaders in my dad's church said to my dad. Um, but I imagine it, it was something like, you know, now you're the man of the house. My dad was the oldest son. Um, and... You know, everything works out for good. Stuff like that. Um, the effective theology of my parents' church um, basically mandated a keep calm and carry on approach to, to suffering and, tra- and and tragic events. And sometimes I wonder if the family, my, my greater extended family, would be healthier if someone, a pastor or an elder, would have invited them to bring their pain and confusion to the Lord during that time. And the third reason I wanted to study lament and become more aware of, of this of biblical genre of prayer is because I'm now a pastor in a Reformed tradition, the same tradition that my parents uh, grew up in. And now I minister to families that are going through tragedy. So I wanted to explore the possibility of lament in light of my tradition's understanding of God if God is so sovereign over all history and is meticulously working out his plan in the world, which I believe to be true, then is lament an appropriate voice of faith? If so, how so? If nothing comes to us by his by, by chance but only by God's fatherly hand, and if it's his will is always good, then who am I, or who are we to question to shake our fists up at the sky? to ask, to complain, to God. Some Christians throughout history have concluded that lament doesn't belong in the life of faith, and I've got a couple examples here on your front page. This first is from a man named Donald Dunkerley, a Presbyterian minister, and he wrote this uh, following the death of his newborn daughter. There are no real mistakes, he said. We're never victims of accidents and meaningless events. What happens has been done by God and with a good purpose. And when apparent tragedies occur in the lives of believers, instead of hanging our heads and saying, Oh, it is a terrible tragedy, one should praise God, knowing that he has a good purpose. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. The responsibility is his, and because what he does is right, I don't need to blame or be bitter or be fault-fighting against anyone. What God does is right. Praise the Lord." And then another example, um, this by a guy named Caspar Olivianus. He's one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. In my tradition, the Heidelberg Catechism is a—it's one of our confessions. It's, it's <coughs> something that I, as a reform minister, kind of sign on to. Like, I believe this teaches the truth of Scripture. And uh, he wrote a commentary on the Catechism, and in it he said this. Since, since God works out everything, it follows that whoever believes from the heart that God, who does all is reconciled with him forever, and is his father, must also firmly hold that whatever happens to him, in general or in particular, whether for him or to all appearances against him, are good deeds, indeed good deeds of God. Therefore, whoever is offended, extremely angered, or terribly distressed by that, only shows the weakness of his faith in God, whose deeds he does not recognize." So as I'm reading this, these uh, some thinkers from my own tradition, I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion that I disagree with their way of thinking on this. But it's not because I disagree with the theology, the doctrine of providence, which we're going to explore, but how they apply this doctrine to the life of faith or piety. So scripture in my interpretation teaches us that God is indeed sovereign and that he is indeed providentially working out his plan of redemption in the world. But where I think Dunkerley and Olivianus is in the way they apply this doctrine, the doctrine of providence, to Christian piety, I think they may make a faulty move from this is the way God is to this is how we are to be in relationship to him. So that's what I want to explore mostly tonight, is that application of the doctrine of providence to our Christian piety, to my Christian piety. So my thesis, uh, thesis is this. While it's true that God is sovereign over history, that doesn't mean we have to passively accept and praise him for everything that takes place in our lives and in the world. In fact, far from being a deterrent to lament, the Christian doctrine of providence is actually the ground that gives rise the possibility of lament. I'm going to unpack that now. In order to do that, um, I think we need to just talk about providence in general for just a little while. And the basic idea here is that from the scriptures, we discover that God is not an absentee landlord. Contra the deists, God is not simply a watchmaker who winds the world up and then leaves it be. Rather, the Scriptures portray God as a God who is involved in the outworking of history. He's involved in governance. So that's one of the words theologians use. And, uh, you know, we read in Psalms, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So everything is under his control. And it's his. He's involved not only in governance, but in the preservation of creation. In Psalm 36, we read that God preserves both people and animals. So not not a watchmaker who winds it up, sets it off to do its own thing, but it's actively involved in the preservation, ongoing preservation of creation. The Joseph narrative in Genesis is a story that I think helps us um, better understand God's providence. Joseph's brothers, um, if you recall the story... uh, They thought they were getting rid of their brother by uh, selling him into slavery. But in reality, and we're getting glimpses of this as the story unfolds, that God is up to something bigger in that story. And so they're doing one thing, but God is working through this to do a whole other thing. Same with when uh, Joseph gets to Egypt. Pharaoh thought it was his good idea to install Joseph as the ruler of the land. But in reality, Pharaoh's actions were only working to further God's plans in the world. And at the end of the story, which has got a lot of twists and turns and crazy events that happened to Joseph, um, Joseph comes to this realization. He says, you know, what you meant for evil, he says to his brothers, God turned to good. So he sees that God has been weaving all these pieces together to bring him to this place. So a similar thing happens actually during Holy Week. And when you read the the Gospels and the way that they describe the outworking of the events of Holy Week, like you see Judas doing his thing, uh, uh, selling out Jesus, basically, like betraying him. But behind the scenes, we're getting a glimpse that this isn't like God is still in control of what is happening to bring about his purposes in the world. So Isaiah 46 has a nice line that I think also captures who God is and his, his providential, the providential aspect of His being. And in this passage, God is mocking the other so-called gods, right? The ones made of stone and wood. He's just, he's mocking them, and he says this about Himself: I am, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And then I think the Heidelberg Catechism, which is, like I said, this uh, teaching tool that is in my tradition, provides perhaps a a helpful definition of providence. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God, by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Now, a couple of clarifications are in order, I think, when talking about God's providence. The first one is that theologians always make a distinction between God's active will and God's permissive will. So God permitted the Holocaust. God didn't actively cause the Holocaust. Some see this as a dubious distinction that doesn't quite get God off the hook for the evil found in the world. But I do think it's an important distinction. God is not the source of evil in the world, but he sometimes does allow evil and works through evil to accomplish his good purposes. In addition to this distinction, theologians also talk about the interplay of the divine will and the human will, in their understanding of providence, and they call this concursus. So God's providence does not rule out our agency or our actions as human. We are not puppets in God's dollhouse, for instance. We have agency or volition. The brothers, in the story of Joseph, are real actors in that drama. They are totally responsible for selling their brother into slavery. They acted on their own volition, and yet... Nevertheless, their act was a key piece in what God was doing in the world. So there's this double action. There's human action, and then there's God's... And and how this all works together is, well, it's a mystery. And I think this is actually the point, in some ways, when we're trying to understand providence, is that what theologians are trying to do is not so much nail down God, but think of it rather as preserving this mystery. And I'm finding that so much of good theology is, is often about preserving mystery. And the mystery is this. <clears throat> God is in control. He's not an absentee landlord. The future is not open so much that he can't stop events from happening or he can't dictate what's going to happen. He's in control. He's got the whole world in his hands, as that, uh, the old song goes. And yet human freedom and responsibility remain, and God is not responsible for sin and even evil in the world. So there's, there's the mystery that the doctrine of providence is trying to protect, that, that reality. So I recognize, I just raced through that, that some of this might be new for some of you, and maybe you totally disagree with uh, this theology, But I'm hoping for the sake of my argument that tonight, that you can just accept, for now, the Reformed, Orthodox, Catholic view of providence. And I don't think this is just my own tribe here. I think this, this doctrine of providence is pretty consistent across a big swath of the Christian tradition. But for my purposes tonight, I'm not going to be challenging this doctrine as such, but challenging how people have applied this doctrine to how we live out our faith. So let's get back to that. So how has it been applied? Well, we've already heard from Dunkerley and Olivia Anis. Now let's hear from a few others. Here's an excerpt from uh, John Calvin's most famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, and it should be mentioned that John Calvin has written a lot. And so he's more nuanced in other areas. But the institutes of the Christian religion have made the biggest impact. People study that more than they study his other writing. So this has had a huge impact on my tradition, but a lot of other Reformed and Presbyterian tradition. Here it is. This is what he has to say. If there is, more, if, if there is no more effective remedy for anger and impatience, he has surely benefited greatly, who has so learned to meditate upon God's providence that he can always recall his mind to this point. The Lord has willed it, therefore it must be born, not only because one may not contend against against it, but also because he wills nothing but what is just and expedient. To sum this up, when we are unjustly wounded by men, let us overlook their wickedness, which would but worsen our pain and sharpen our minds to revenge. Remember to mount up to God and learn to believe for certain that whatever our enemy has wickedly committed against us was permitted and sent by God's just Dispensation, but the conclusion will always be, the Lord so willed; therefore, let us follow His will. Indeed, amid, amid the very pricks of pain, of men groaning in tears, this thought must intervene, to incline our heart to bear cheerfully those things which have so moved it. So, pretty clear uh, teaching there about how to apply this doctrine to our life. And truthfully, there is some peace, I find, that does come to me, personally, when I think about God's providential care for my life, specifically when things happen to me by other people. Like, I actually like that, that point. Like, when we are unjustly wounded by other people, it actually helps to overlook their wickedness, to think, okay, like, what, what is God doing in the midst of this? I, I find personally I found that helpful. But anyway, I'll talk more about what's good about this. <laughs> and now Francis Turretin. So I'm choosing a bunch of old guys. Um, why I chose them is kind of strategic. So John Calvin is hugely influ- influential on a huge chunk of the Christian tradition, and this Francis Turton his systematic theology was the primary textbook used at Princeton Seminary for like hundred, like a hundred years. Like, he was just the guy everyone read. So he's impacting huge amounts of American pastors all the time. right? So this is impacting the preaching we're hearing in the pulpit, too, from guys like this guy. And we'll hear what he has to say. From this contemplation of God's providence, there ought to arise in the hearts of believers an earnest desire, A, of holiness, B, of gratitude, C, of patience and humility in adversity, that in all things which happen somewhat harshly to us, we may acquiesce without a murmur in the will and providence of God. He is a bad soldier who follows his general with groans, and this submitting to God must be done the more willingly, but because it comes, it becomes us to be persuaded that the evil deeds of even the bitterest enemies are both permitted. And sent only by the just dispensation of God, since not even the devil himself comes forth to assail us without the nod of God, and so all things work together for good to us. And the cup offered by so friendly hand, although bitter to the flesh, are yet helpful, helpful to the spirit. So we're getting a clearer picture here of what much of the tradition has said about how this doctrine ought to be applied to our piety. But is it right? And that's the question I wanted to explore. Must we patiently accept everything that happens to us in this world? Must we keep calm and carry on, right? That's sort of the simplest way to describe how to apply this to our lives. Well, God's in control, keep calm, carry on. Is that what I should say to the family after a lightning bolt struck their son's chest. Keep calm. Carry on. To be fair, I think there's some truth and wisdom in Calvin Olivianus and Tertullian's application of the doctrine of providence to piety. Knowledge of providence can produce peace in us. Deep peace. I, I was in the hospital a few weeks ago with a man in our congregation who's been diagnosed with pretty serious cancer. I didn't have anything to say basically and all I said was simply you know I don't know what's happening but I know God holds your life in his hands that he holds your future right so in a way I reached for that doctrine to provide a little comfort or stability to this man's life which was out of control and I think this reality right that that your life is safe in God's hands it can give you existential resources uh, during the most, you know, to endure the most heinous of evil or the darkest of nights. But even though there is some wisdom and truth in this approach, I still don't believe it captures the full picture that we're given in Scripture. The Psalms, for instance, specifically provide us with a different way of approaching God. Instead of keeping cal- calm and carrying on, the Psalms have uh, no trouble voicing their agony and submitting their complaint to God. And they do this on the basis of God's sovereignty and his providence. They too, the psalmists, have a robust view of who God is and his control over the situation. But they don't interpret this as a reason to stay silent. They interpret this as a reason to speak up and to say, Hey God, you're the one in charge around here. Now do something about this. And I think Richard Mao articulates this well. And this is a different A different voice for us. God ordains, permits, everything that comes to pass, but we don't simply have to accept that fact. We can complain to God rather vigorously about the things we have a hard time accepting, which is to say, I think, that we can lament. So uh, the Psalms, very important book in the Bible, uh, filled with prayers and songs, helping people in their relationship with God giving them language for their relationship with God. And nearly one-third of the psalms are lament psalms, which means that one-third of Israel's prayer book is teaching them how to voice their complaint and their grief to God. Jesus also used this as his prayer book. So one-third of Jesus' prayer book is dedicated to teaching him how to voice his pain and discontent. And I like what Ellen Davis has to say, which is just so funny, but it's good. It seems that ancient Israel believed that the kind of prayer in which we most need fluency is the loud groan, and they have bequeathed us a lot of material on which to practice. So I, I pulled out one uh, one psalm of lament, and I'm going to read it for you. Most of these psalms uh, follow a, a fairly predictable pattern. There's an address. There's a complaint. There's a request or a petition. An expression of trust. So I'm going to read Psalm 13, and I actually don't want you to look at your paper. I just want you to listen to it. You close your eyes if you'd like. Um, and just take this in, and then we'll have a little discussion about the psalm uh, when I'm done reading it. So this I chose this one. It's short, and it's uh, sort of the, the perfect example of a lament psalm. Here we go. How long, Lord, will you continue to ignore me? How long will you pay no attention to me? How long must I worry and suffer in broad daylight? How long will my enemy gloat over me? Look at me. Answer me. O Lord, my God, revive me or else I will die. Then my enemy will say, I have defeated him. Then my foes will rejoice because I am upended. But I trust in your faithfulness. May I rejoice because of your deliverance. I will sing praises to the Lord when he vindicates me. And that's the end. So let's engage in like a little conversation. What, What did you hear? What struck you as I read those words? Any line jump out or mooned?
1: It was interesting to hear that the lament was not a private thing, but a public thing, almost like a public shame. We often think of grief as just something that was privately held. but this. Is yeah, where
0: did you, help me see that. What, like, what, do, you mean, what do you mean the public thing?
1: Um, how long must my enemy gloat over me? Mm. Uh, suffer in broad daylight? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just think that a lot of people's grief <coughs> is carried around them like pig pen. You know, it's just people avoid them.
2: Yeah. So I just think about that.
0: Yeah, it's very it's not common or it's common for when people are suffering in my church that they stay away. It's almost like uh, I don't want to talk about it. Mm. It's like I carry it around me. Like everyone knows I'm sick or in pain or
2: something. There's a definite "woe is me" (coughs) self-pity.
0: Yeah. Would you say that it's self-pity? But there, I definitely the woe is me. Is he? Is yeah, he? I
2: think so. I, I I think that the the voice that's stating this is coming from from within, from inside of me. Um, Life is not really what it should be, and uh, it's, it's, it's rough, and I need something done about it. So That's it, right. It, it's, it's starting to dig a bit of a hole.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that how long, right? That comes out a few times. It's like, this just keeps on going, right? How long?
3: Yeah, it's just very hopeless. Yeah. Well. Well, I
4: mean, until the end.
0: Right,
3: but yeah. It
0: out there if it right, I like that elongated suffering. I don't see the end of it. Yeah. What,
5: what, what struck me is that like the bulk of the psalm is the lamenting, is the complaining, and then it's like the change at the end. Like sometimes we think like, okay, yeah, say you can say that you're having a hard time, but don't don't go on too long about it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, totally. Like uh, <laughs> it's so funny how how Christians pray. Um, you know, we try to like very piously build our way up to like some sort of stronger request and then kind of go back into our shell and it's like, sorry to be too pushy," or you know, don't mean to intrude. But yeah, this is like this is right from the beginning. And notice, like even in the address, like, the Lord's name doesn't come first.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like the, the cry comes first. And then and I'm talking to you, God right yeah
4: the sense of abandonment and how that's so commonly i feel like it's just in our human nature grieving or the loss of something that we desire immediately we feel god's left us Mm -hmm. look at me answer me yes and just Um. this um basically what you're potentially saying is He hasn't left us, which everyone hears that when they're grieving, but it's like... That's not how
0: it feels. Yeah, exactly. It's
4: more than that. And I can't imagine someone losing their child and being like, it's all part of your plan. I guess what you referenced in the beginning. Anyways, that abandonment streak is in there.
2: Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
4: Feels just honest, which is nice. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. You get a sense that he's saying what's so, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is what's so mm-hmm. in my life, and I'm going to say it because I'm tired of whatever, just pretending I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I like that little part about, um, then my enemy will say I have defeated him. There's almost like a little bit of a, a veiled threat in there, <laughs> you know, it's like, God, you don't want my enemy to do that, right?
2: It's not very veiled. You're right, yeah, it's,
0: it's sort of out there. So there's this, almost this lobbying yeah. that's happening. going yeah. like to make you I'm, look bad, guys. This is going to make you look bad. <laughs> this goes down like...
2: This. If you haven't noticed. Yeah. <laughs> so this isn't going to look good for you. Yeah.
0: So it's like, he's like, after describing his own, he's, he's trying... Like, it's it's it, this is real. This is real. <coughs> real, real stuff. And then the commands, right? So that compla- uh no, the request. It's not really a request. These are these are imperatives. That look at me, mm-hmm. like so. It's like when I'm talking to my kids. Like, look at me, you know. <laughs> it's like whoa, <laughs> right? That gets their attention. Anyway, so there's a lot of boldness. Mm-hmm. They're not saying you are in control. Therefore, I kind of cower. It's like you're in control, and therefore I stand up. There's this covenant relationship we have. So, the biggest part about these prayers is that the psalmists lean into that covenant relationship. So, the Lord, right? Yahweh, the God who has made promises to his people. So, they're saying, You've made promises, and I'm calling you on those promises. So, it's very, very bold. Um, And this is, uh, this is teaching us to pray. This is quite amazing. And I think the, uh, the best way to define lament, or at least one of the better defini- definitions I've found, is by uh, Stacey Getty-Smith. Um, just an article in a, in a worship magazine, but I thought it was really, really good. Biblical lament, then, is an honest cry, cry to a God who is powerful, good, and just. A cry that this situation is not in alignment with God's person or purposes. It's a cry that expects an answer from God and therefore results in hope, trust, and joy rather than despair. And I think what's most interesting to me as I study the the Psalms of Lament, and this comes out in a few of them, uh, specifically Psalm 44, I, I think, is that they're not questioning God's control or His sovereignty or His providence. So they, they agree with these these old dead uh, reform guys and their definitions of providence, but they have a much different application of how that is lived out in their actual relationship with God. They don't submit. They, I mean, they do kind of, but they 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 take their covenant relationship seriously, saying I. I matter to you. You've made promises to me. And uh, I'm going to stand here and say that out loud. So they interpret God, who God is as an opportunity to pray and to petition boldly. And would we say that the one who prays Psalm 13, whoever wrote that, whoever first prayed that, would we say that they have weak faith? Think about that. Do they have weak faith? They're taking it to God, right? Mm-hmm. If you've got weak faith, you're like, God's not going to do anything. Like, who is God? Like, he's not going to, I'm not going to go to him in prayer. Like, it's an act of faith to bring your complaint mm-hmm. to God. I think there's a point in which you can kind of go over the top, like move from true lament to sort of crybaby, like self-centeredness. Like, my life isn't going the way I want it to. Like, I don't have a big enough house or a nice enough backyard. Like, all these things that we're very self-centered and then we feel like the whole world is against us, right? So that's like sort of the crybaby lament. And that's not what we see in Scripture. This is like something evil is happening. Something has gone terribly wrong that does not fit with what we know about God and His kingdom and His purposes. And that's where this prayer of lament really uh, rises up. So far from being a sign of weak faith, faith, the lament is actually to express a robust faith, and you wouldn't bring your request boldly before God if you didn't trust God. So lamenting ones trust God, and that's why they come to God in prayer. So the conclusion I'm drawing is different than the tradition that I've received in some ways. Um, The Psalms show us that there's another way to engage the one who is in control. We can lament, and I think Richard Mao's quote, I'll just say it again, God ordains, permits everything that comes to pass, but we don't have to simply accept that fact. We can complain to God rather vigorously about the things we have a hard time accepting. Now what about the New Testament, right? There's some, uh, it gets a little complicated as we move to the New Testament. I'll just spend <coughs> a few minutes talking about this. But there's a lot in the New Testament about bearing our sufferings, often with joy rejoicing in our sufferings. How does lament and, and that all work together? So for instance, in Romans 5, Paul encourages us to rejoice in suffering because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. So suffering can be used to build us up. So we should be thankful from time to time, I guess, when it comes. But I think a crucial distinction needs to be made, and I think this can be made in just about all of the New Testament text on suffering there's a distinction that needs to be made between suffering for Christ's sake and suffering for some other reason so when someone makes fun of me for being a disciple I don't need to lament about that in fact, like the disciples I can rejoice in that when the disciples are thrown in prison because of their bearing witness to the gospel they're like, oh, we're on the right track you know Jesus said this would happen to us like it's <laughs> happening so they're they're really really happy about it in that in that sort of joyful way. And of course Jesus says that with the beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad on that day for great is your reward in heaven. But there's a difference between suffering for Christ's sake and suffering because the world is not yet totally under the reign of Christ. So like Chronic back pain, right? That's just a result of the fall. It is not necessarily like something to rejoice in, for sure. Or your son getting struck by lightning at 18 years old. right? That is a totally different kind of suffering. It's not suffering for Christ's sake. To lament, I think, is to acknowledge the not yet aspect of God's kingdom. So Christ's victory over sin and death, we believe, or the Christian tradition believes, is complete with Christ's resurrection. But the world still groans under the weight of sin and death. And that is what gives rise, often, to our lament. How long, O Lord? Christ himself lamented while on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. But we also trust that the Lord heard his groans and came to the rescue on the third day. And Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus quotes, just, it's amazing. It's such an amazing psalm. Because the first half is all this descent into the pit. And the second half is all resurrection. It's so beautiful that that Christ takes that psalm on his lips. And I think for the interpreter, the one who's listening, we, we know that this this is not the end. Because the end of Psalm 22 is is glory so the uh, where am I now and while Christ invites us to rejoice in our suffering for his name's sake Jesus also <coughs> in the gratitude blesses those who mourn right? blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted so the New Testament doesn't outlaw lament but as those who pray on the far side of the resurrection we are invited to lament with hope I think that's the crucial piece too. So just uh I think some of the implications of this in the life of uh at least my church community. I'm always trying to be a better pastor. Like what does it look like to to do this well? And I think there's an there's a loss. There's a costly impact that uh, my tradition and many Christian traditions have when we downplay the voice of lament in the life of faith. And a person named Walter Brigham, an Old Testament scholar, has really helped me and a lot of other people see this costly loss of lament in the church's life together. Two things he says suffer as a result. The first is the loss of genuine covenant interaction between God and God's people. So if we can't be real with God, if we can't have an honest conversation with God, you know, if you were to really like what, what's left of the relationship, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. If if there's only submittance and only your will be done, which I think is important to pray, eventually you kind of grow cold towards God. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's there's not a, a a crucial conversation happening there. And so you know when Tertullian says he is a bad soldier who follows his general with groans, well I'm saying what God doesn't want. Just cold soldiers following him. Like, this is a covenant relationship he's trying to build with us. So, being yourself, be, saying what's so, I mean, this is all very important for a, a genuine covenant interaction. And the second loss that Brighamman notes is the loss of concern for justice. So, here's a quote from one of his books A community of faith that negates lament soon concludes that the hard issues of justice are improper questions to pose at the throne because the throne seems only to be only a place for praise. So think about it. I mean, if everything that happens in the world is sort of preordained, God's made it so, it's like, I guess I just have to accept my lot. And that means poor people are poor because that's the way God ordained it. Right? So there's no need for compassion anymore or fighting for justice in the world, we just sort of, this is the way it is. It's a, it's a fatalism of sorts, which Brueggemann is putting his finger on. Which of course doesn't align with the teachings of Scripture either, whereas the proper response to suffering is compassion, help, justice, pursuing it. Right? So it's, it's not rocket science, really. And to Brueggemann's two costly losses... I'll add a third, and that's the loss of a place for hurting people to worship. Uh, there was a woman in my church who, um, his her son was killed in a, uh, kind of a freak bar fight. Like, it was a fight that became fatal. And uh, he died, and for about a decade, she wasn't able to step foot in my church, or, or any church, really. And, um, it's hard to praise when you're in deep, deep pain. But well, what if we could have read Psalm 13? Could she have been able to participate in the worship then? You know, what if we did a better job creating space in our services for people who are just in deep pain? You know, in the Psalm 42, whose my tears have been my only food for day and night. The psalmist says. Mm-hmm. Can we have space for crying people? So you're starting to see uh, where I'm coming, the conclusions I'm coming to, and also some of the pastoral conclusions I'm coming to. I mean, I, I don't try simply to help people keep calm and carry on. I'm seeking to help them find their voice and to have a genuine covenant relationship with the Father of the Son and the Holy Spirit and to bring their suffering and their complaints to God's throne. Since uh, Walter Storff was the one who got me into lament and I forgot his book, um, I thought I'd finish with um, my favorite journal entry that he put. So he's reflecting on his um, his son's death and he's just prayerfully journeying through his grief. And this I probably won't be able to get it through without crying. That's so beautiful. He's reflecting on uh, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessings to those who mourn. Cheers to those who weep. Hail to those whose eyes are filled with tears. Hats off to those who suffer. Bottoms up to the grieving. How strange. How incredibly strange. When you and I are left to our own devices, it's the smiling, successful ones of the world that we cheer. Hail to the victors. The histories we write of the odyssey of humanity on Earth are the stories of the exalting ones, the nations that won in battle, the businesses that defeated their competition, the explorers who have found a pass to the Pacific, the scientists whose theories proved correct. We turn away from the crying ones of the world. Our photographers tell us to smile. Blessed are those who mourn. What can it mean? What can, one can understand why Jesus hails those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, why he hails the peacemakers and the pure in heart. These are qualities of character which belong to the life of the kingdom. But why does he hail the mourners of the world? Why cheer tears? It must be that mourning is also a quality of character that belongs to the life of his realm. Who then are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. The mourners are aching visionaries. Such people Jesus blesses. He hails them, he praises them, he salutes them, and he gives them the promise that the the new day for whose absence they ache will come. They will be comforted. The Stoics of antiquity said, Be calm. Disengage yourself, neither laugh nor weep. Jesus says, Be open to the wounds of the world, mourn humanity's weeping, be wounded by humanity's wounds, be in agony over humanity's agony, but do so in the good cheer that a day of peace is coming. To lament is to be opened to the wounds of the world, your own pain pain of others and to be bold enough to bring those tears and complaints into the presence of God to share with him what's going on they will be comforted, those that mourn
2: and that's the end
6: Mm
2: -hmm. thank you so
1: let's have some time for discussion
2: David, I was struggling with the Providence uh, portion that you discussed at the beginning about the fact that as we pursue a relationship with God, uh, we're not um, puppets on a stage. We're not marionettes. Um, and God has put his spirit within us. And... And you've given a certain calling, like compassion, that you, that you, you ended with. And, and it strikes me as being rather different from the sort uh, of shrugging of the shoulders, oh, it's the world, about um, um putting, being the ostrich and putting your head in the sand approach. <coughs> um, and so it, it's a challenge to uh, thoughtful, uh, spirit-filled living. Uh, to each individual circumstance uh, as it arises and as it develops. That's not a question. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I receive your reflections. You're, you're working through your own thoughts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If it turns <laughs> into a question, ask away. But
2: put it into a question. That's great. Yeah.
6: Yeah.
2: I have a question.
6: Yeah. Sorry. Do you have a question? No. Go oh. for um, My question was, oh, in like your research um, in general, like, what have you come across in terms of, I'm just thinking about lamentation. Mm. In an ancient text, the perspective and um, proximity to suffering then would have been very different than what we go through today. And I mean, regardless... Obviously, regardless of whatever culture somebody's from, um, a child being struck by lightning at 18 is going to be received as a tragedy. That's or pretty 18. timeless, right? Yeah, yeah. But I just wonder. Um, like, I do know you go back even a couple generations; infant mortality rate was quite a bit higher. And so, I'm just wondering if there's any kind of theology or any um, any perspective towards um, the meaning of suffering in light of. Of a cultural perception or a or a certain mm-hmm. historic context and that kind of thing. Yeah, or, or sorry, or even present day, where we're rooted, how that skews our perceptions. Of perception. That's that yeah,
0: yeah, very interesting. And it'd be kind of interesting to just explore that for a bit. Like, yeah, you wonder what life was like back then, and certainly from what we know, it's like you know sort of nasty and short right like sickness comes and you're done or you get you get a pain and you got it for the rest of your life no Tylenol you know like imagine praying, like if you just chronic headaches like with nothing to take it away but people but there's something consistent though about life in this world and but i would say we've got it easy in some some senses physically anyway our our health can be taken care of much easier than back then <coughs> and we don't have like as much tribal warfare like in our area of the world which they probably had to deal more with um, yeah I, I don't know I, but to be human I mean we all experience suffering at some level I, I'd say though like one of the things I'm starting to worry about so I've been thinking about this for about 10-12 years and now I'm starting to it's not that I'm reverting back to like these, uh, what John Calvin and Turretin said. Like, I think they've made some wrong conclusions there. But um, I'm starting to see more of the wisdom of... Like It used to just be like, this is so stupid. Now I'm like, oh, now I'm starting to think about it more. Um, because I, 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 we are getting maybe a little bit more self-centered uh, in our relationship with God. Like, God owes me one. Um, I deserve, you know, A, B, and C, and so I'm going to tell God what I think. And I, sometimes I think we're starting to be a little bit too self-centered in that way, like elevating. So perhaps before, people were just like, no, 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 you're down, you're way down here. Don't try to say anything to God that, you know, be down here. Now it's like, almost like we're getting a little too high. You know, we're a little too elevated prideful or thinking too highly of ourselves than we ought and demanding things of God that we shouldn't. So I sometimes wonder about that. Um, I don't know if that's an answer to your question. But sometimes I think today we've, yeah, we're getting a little too haughty in our relationship. But I don't know.
1: You said at the beginning that the Psalms give us vocabulary for lament. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, very important because we we don't have the words on our own. That's right. And so it's so the old tradition of of the psalter is very important, and we've lost that tradition. Yeah, totally. So we've lost the language. We
0: have. We're, we're we're well. We're in danger of losing it um, because it's not. Uh, yeah, the impact well I would like to hear more about why, why that is important to you like um, in your own, your own journey what, 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 are the, what does that vocabulary mean to you
1: well I'm not that good with words so I need those I need those words and the context of those
2: words yeah
0: yeah totally um, sometimes we don't know what to pray right? the Psalms can be a guide for us put ourselves into their shoes. Um, So in some sort of like super conservative reformed churches, like they don't even have music, no like organ, no piano. And they literally, the only thing they sing is the Psalms. And so it's like you get to a super long one, and you're like, (gasps) it's like all these verses, right? But they have them memorized. And they go through them for like the whole year. So you're singing like... And Lord, smite my enemies. You know, like, and uh, you think it's kind of weird, but they're they're really getting language to nurture like a rich relationship with God. So that's the the good side. The bad side is they're really hard to sing, and, <laughs> and music is good, like, you know, guitar, piano, organ, like that's awesome. <laughs> wow. It makes but, me think
1: of uh, Brueggemann said that uh, of the Psalms. He said that there are words to God which God has given us yes. so that we might use it to Him.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right. It's a gift. Yeah. It's a gift.
3: Yeah. Um, I think I'm a little bit stuck on like this might not be the this might be like a really big question. That's
7: okay.
3: But on the um, doctrine of providence like the God's active will versus God's permissive will Mm-hmm. like I think like even we read in the psalm like a lot of what he was like he was doing is like (coughs) questioning like why are these things why are these things happening like Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
3: and like I kind of find that pretty quick to jump to like if why are these things happening you're asking God do you think it can kind of make someone question like is God in control of these things is God behind these things like how do you really uh, grapple with the fact where it's like God loves us, but bad things happen, but God's in control, but bad things happen yes. so God causes bad things right. why yes, so like I don't know, it's not really a question it's more of like um kind of blurry
0: totally so like, well, I think you're you're, yeah. you're 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 uh you're touching your finger on that some of the really hard um it's hard to navigate through some of this stuff uh and that's. So I was trying to get out with protecting the mystery of like, we don't quite
3: no.
0: understand this all but there's things we want to avoid one of the things we want to avoid is to say that there are things that could happen in the world that, um, someone help me articulate this like like, sort of the future is out of control and God doesn't even quite know how it's going to all work out and if his plan will actually come to fruition, so he's out of control. So in a way, that that takes away the the ability to lament too, right? Because you're not you, you wouldn't go to God if you if you didn't think he could do anything, right? If it was sort of the future was open. Um, so that's one danger to avoid that that like God is not strong enough or big enough or sovereign enough to have the whole world and the future in His hands. And then the other end of that that you want to avoid is that we're just like puppets in God's little fantasy world and he just moves us whenever we want and we just kind of do whatever he says to do so that takes out human agency volition and, and so that's those are sort of the two ditches on either side of the road and somehow we want to find our way down the middle and Providence rightly explained tries to, like, protect that middle space, even though it's hard to describe. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, but, I like, I, I think it is. Sometimes I think in my own... prayer well, Whoever, you know, if you've ever been seriously sick or dealing with some serious issue, and you pray and you pray, mm-hmm. and it doesn't go away, and you start to think, well, maybe this is just God's plan, and so maybe I should just accept it, and it's like, well, maybe no, I should lament. <laughs> it's like, you kind of get a little bit wrapped up in your own head. What's the best thing to do? So I think it's a common experience. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, with Joseph, you have almost a, both happening, permissive and active. Because mm-hmm. he says what you meant for evil. Yeah. And so he's not denying the evilness of those actions. Mm-hmm. God has used for good. Yeah. Uh, it's not saying that God caused those evil actions but it's, those evil actions are never beyond his control right. to make use of them yeah. uh, and he uses them and yeah. the same with Jesus yeah. you know, uh, God didn't nail those nails into the hands but he was in control of this he allowed it to happen it was even, but it was, almost, it was also his purpose that it should yeah. happen and so you have both active and permissive at the same time.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Really, I find the best way to get to the bottom of some of these doctrines is to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Like like the Joseph story. Like, it's so perfect, right? To, like, try to capture this hard-to-describe interplay between the things that happen on earth and what God is up to, sort of, mm-hmm. above it. It's amazing. Um, I guess that's why scripture is a story, right? Like, it's... Mm-hmm
5: to say all these things like you can't capture a person with just a philosophical thesis like you need a certain creativity or story to tell me the story of your life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: one thing that i was thinking about and i continue to struggle i mean i hear many horrible stories Um, lots of very Tragic stuff that happens to people, and sometimes back to back to back to back tragic, tragic mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And in some situations, you know, the the darling son, the darling daughter dies, you know, or um, you have someone die at an old age, and someone's been married for seventy years, um, even an infant. <coughs> but there are sometimes that I. I have people that come through where tragic happens because like, you know, um, I mean, I had a friend overdose on heroin. So, uh, but imagine that that was my child,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and let's say that prayed for my child, reared them up with hope and faith in God's providence, etc., right. so on. <coughs> and then you have that happen. Um, I can't imagine the unbearable grief. That would be on somebody. Um, how might we apply that? Not, <laughs> yeah. You don't have to have the, the answer, the, the pure answer. But I just, Let me tell you. Kind of a, <laughs> so I've worked kind it of down of to two <laughs> sentences. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah
2: like, I think... <laughs> because that's a
1: different situation. There's no, you know, people aren't going to have the same kind of, oh, they were such a good child or something like that.
2: Yeah.
0: It's so personal, eh? Like everyone's experience, even even people's experience of the same event, like the death of a parent. One child is going to be totally rocked by that, and another child might not be. All depends on the relationship. And uh, I, you know, I know, just speaking my own personal like pastoral mode, is uh, you know I, I find. Psalm twenty three gives me almost everything I need for pastoral ministry in the sense that it sh- shows me how how God is a pastor, how God does shepherding ministry, and um, you know even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, like He is with me. So it's not God does a rescue out of the sh- out of the death out of the mm-hmm. the dark valley, but it's a, a, a traveling partner. So I I try to be a traveling partner, and um, sometimes that means kind of leaning on one side or the other of the doctrine of providence, right? God's got the world in His hands, or let's let's cry together, let's get angry together, like trying to balance my emotional state with their emotional state a little bit, you know, um, so that there's empathy. That feels as though they have a travel a traveling partner. To go with him through that dark that dark time mm-hmm.
1: does that I, I answer I, that I mean I don't know I'm a, I'm a bit at a loss with it I mean uh, the hope of providence the hope of the resurrection the hope of the wideness of God's mercy and those are yeah. the things that I lean on oh right so and like if a, like someone's like your, your child is lost right yeah. and Uh, you lean on those things (coughs) I mean ultimately we are not the judge I mean there's people who are left behind in the wake of grief and so Mm -hmm. lament in this situation would be but also how do you deal with those tragic losses that are you know uh, Mm -hmm. yeah I had a friend who was looking for drugs in Memphis and basically wrecked her car into a telephone pole and died Um, and I mean and if I have those stories I know other people have their stories Um, yeah I think it's a very hard grief and also a hard grief to sustain
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and and you don't want to like turn these things into like examples like but at the same time like you gotta like if if we're if we're being, if we're living foolishly, there are consequences. Yeah. And, uh, and like, <coughs> yeah, it's not, not that, there, there are like wages, the wages of our disobedience yeah. like takes us to very dark places. Um, and I think we need to see those too. Yeah. yeah.
6: Just to add to that, if I can. Um, that's why I asked the cultural suffering, suffering question, because I was what I was thinking about was, like, um, you know, like, in different... A lot of our suffering... I don't want to seem dismissive to, like, the concept of loss, because it's obviously awful, but... Um, a lot of our suffering comes from our expectations, I think. Mm-hmm. Our, the, the more... The higher your expectations, <coughs> the more they're unmet, the greater the suffering or it's at least enhanced and I just, I wonder if you look at countries where there's no running water or the expectations aren't there (coughs) um, they're able to it hurts still, like I don't have kids right, but it doesn't take a genius to know that that would hurt, right, that would be a hurtful loss but they are are hurt, but they're able to weather the storm a little bit better, Mm. whereas I wonder if in the western world Our expectations regarding everything are so high. And I wonder if a lot of our suffering doesn't come from the fact that we have it so bad, but that we have it so good.
0: Yeah. Or we see other people who have it really good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? So there's like that envy built in there. Keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I'm thinking about that. Sort of. (coughs) Theologically. I I just...
3: uh, just wonder if the expectation isn't so much because when I, I when i think of your example i can't see that someone wouldn't suffer the same amount of pain yeah but their expectation to to get past the pain maybe isn't the same they expect mm-hmm. to live with that pain for the rest of their life because yeah. that's part of what they know their life might be whereas our expectation is this awful thing has happened and we should be able to move past it because mm-hmm. everybody else around us is happy and doing well
2: and, and whatever. So maybe that's
5: where the expectations I, think. Mm-hmm. I think of, um In my church we did a series through the Psalms a few years ago and one of the women in our church who grew up in farming kind of very simple life in South Korea uh, talked about how this expression of grief that sometimes is very vocal and seems maybe kind of dramatic to us in the Psalms, that was more part of her her culture, her, part of her milieu, like growing up, Mm. but like, it wasn't something that you just kept inside. Like, you know, there would be people wailing at the funerals and that kind of thing. And so it's like, maybe expectations are different, but also in some cultures, there's more of a place for letting out that grief. Whereas in the West, it's all stoic kind of. That's right. Yeah, Totally.
0: Well, you know, just trying to tie some things when I'm hearing together. Like, on the one hand, I'd say as a Christian, like, I have great expectations of God's plan for the world. And in that sense, that increases the hurt (coughs) and the lament for the present. Because there's a lot that's far from what God intends or his purposes. And and the vision we get, say, in Revelation of this heaven and earth uh, being one and just this perfection of, you know, this beautiful, perfect place. So our world isn't that, right? And so that creates creates the dissonance. That's why the blessed are those who mourn. You're seeing the gap between what is now and what will be, and that causes the pain now if that 's that 's a heart that 's attuned to the kingdom of God, but if your heart is attuned to the kingdom of your own sort of pleasure or building your own kingdom here right then you 're going to experience different kinds of frustrations and laments right like that didn 't go the way I wanted it to go, therefore you know what 's up god that 's that 's kind of turning God into like the you know the um, moral ther- therapeutic deism that like God is kind of like a butler that needs to show up when I need help, right? Um, so it it depends on the which how your heart which way your heart is attuned. Um, so that's you know that 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 could produce uh, a a different a, an ungodly lament that's not based on God's kingdom, but just like I'm not getting my own way, right? And uh, we, don't, we don't tend to like not getting our own way in North America. That's for sure.
4: Yeah. I appreciate what you said about the blind submission and how that builds resentment. Yes. And then so often I see it in um, people I know so well that something horrible happens or something just mildly bad happens. You know, you can have a lot of just bad things happen in a month and they say, "Oh, I guess that was God's intention," and I'm like, um, "It's kind of unhealthy. Like, why do you put so much faith, or or just brush aside something that is painful?" <coughs> and, um, just thinking how we don't have critical thinkers amongst people of faith makes me so sad. Like, why would you just blindly? Or maybe I'm thinking about it too much. I don't know. Mm-hmm. but just blindly accept negative things should happen to you.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, I,
4: they do happen to you, but I feel like there should be this tension and this, no, it's not just okay. This is sin. This is our fallen world. Right. We need to approach this with sadness. So I'm like, oh, that was God's plan. Well, was yeah. it? Yeah. That's, I don't know. I just appreciate how you yeah. brought that up and mentioned mm-hmm. the resentment that can build, and then I feel like people grow to the extreme of numbness, and they say, well, what is God to me then? Right. I can't do this anymore. And yeah. like, yeah, I think, yeah, you shouldn't be able to do it that long yeah. of here. <laughs> I love someone who you think hates you. Yeah. I'm kinda
3: of, sorry, I don't want to respond more time. Nope. But um just curious on like a practical level, like uh, like other than, you know, being a pastor and walking through people with through things with people like as a church or as communities, like what would be like ideas to help people embrace lament or create space for that?
0: Yeah, great mm-hmm. question. Uh, no one here is from at my church right now, <laughs> so what I can speak frankly. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Victoria Min Young. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm just, I'm just getting there.
7: Just yeah, playing yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm actually I have a little battle with my worship committee. Because <laughs> there's 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 a, there's a for some reason, and I'm, I I continue to try to get to the bottom of it. There's there's a um, there's a pushback there, hey? Okay? Like, well, I mean, part of the history of my church is that for like you know 15 years they were trying to make the music a little more upbeat, right? It's like it took them forever. Like these these poor folks were just like battled. Like you know how worship can be this generational battle. Well, our poor church had to go through this generation of <laughs> battle. And so a lot of the people that won that battle, so we have praise songs, happy songs, you know, like guitar, drums, like let's rock, let's sing awesome songs to Jesus, like that sort of evangelical worship. They fought really hard for that. And so now I'm kind of, let's go back and sing a dirge, you know. like <laughs> Let's just sing like the most lament. Build song we can find, and they're like, No, we got out of that, you know, we don't want to go back there. So, there's a little bit of a pushback there, but I think creating space, and I've encouraged them, and we do actually do this fairly well, but everyone like creating space for people to know that not just their praise is welcome, but their sorrow and their sadness mm-hmm. is welcome. So, sometimes I'll say that in like in <coughs> prayer. Wherever people are, mm-hmm. if they've had a great week, or if they've had a terrible week, we pray, Lord, that you meet us where we are and minister your grace. Mm-hmm. Or during like a, a prayer of, of confession, or sometimes just I'll, I'll say it. Like I'll just say, it. like the world is far from where God, uh, you know, God's purposes. And so, and leaving silence for people to share their their hurt so it's often actually just creating a little bit of silence and then giving permission for those emotions to kind of come out and up. But I wouldn't say our church does a great job of it. Um, so with the worship, that would be a big part. But then I think just uh, like Brittany and I, my wife and I co-pastor. Um, a couple of years ago, we did a, like a blue Christmas service. So, you know, Christmas is often the time where people experience the the pain. Actually, a lot.
6: You see my family, right? Yeah. Like,
0: anyway, it can be kind of hard, right? I don't know if you wanted to share any more of that. Kidding. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, question. like, you know, second or third week, we had a service where basically it was a, a lamenting service around Christmas time. So, little opportunities like that
7: that are. I really appreciate it at our old church. It was very good at lamenting. Vancouver. In Vancouver. Um, It was very good at lamenting. They even had a service um, around um, people who had lost children or miscarriages or people who weren't able to get pregnant. And there was like space for people to mourn and grieve that. And that was really important for people and, and just be able to create space. And um, but the Good Friday service was like just always so memorable. The contrast between Good Friday and Easter Sunday was just like like Good Friday um, <coughs> this was closer, further and further into darkness. And it, there was a lot of artistic people there, but um, everything would get darker. The cross was covered in in black and Bar-bar. um. I remember the one the one time this. <coughs> I don't know if she's like a drama person, but she was from Australia and she, it was all dark and at the end she just, someone came from the back of the church stomping and just scream like just this guttural, like, it, uh, yeah, it was just very loud, guttural scream and then uh, like a stomp and then a, scre- and it was just like, Whoa. I'll never ever Three minutes. forget it. Three minutes. And It was very me. Oh of stomping
1: through the wooden floors. You can't do everything. And she, and when she, got, and she would yep. stomp really hard for three steps. And it wasn't like scream a high as piercing. Loud as she it could. was just loud, loud. And she got to the very front. And she screamed and all the lights went out. Into service. Whoa. Wow. Wow. There was no, like, don't worry, people, there's Easter. <laughs> it was like, this is Good Friday, there's no hope. And, and then Saturday, everyone had been Prior to the service, that Saturday the church would be open, but it was all going to be black. Yeah. And um, I think they played Tom Waits' uh, nice. Jesus' Blood Hadn't Failed Me Yet. Oh, that was at uh, the very end. It was like a homeless guy singing it, but yeah. it was just like people could come. Um, it was either that or it was, but it was silence, a lot of silence, and people just came and mourned. And on Easter, it was the greatest Easter service I've ever been to. The whole place was covered in flowers. Yeah, yeah. And we just sing. And they take, the cross,
7: they take the cross out onto the street, and they're sing. We're singing outside, and the worship leader at the time was very powerfully, you know, a powerful gifted. Guy. Yeah. So it was. But yeah, it held contrast. each. It
1: held each. Right. Moment. It held lament and grief as it is. Yeah. It held silence as it is. It held resurrection as it is. And, and it's I've, so important to. to yeah do that
0: it's hard it's hard in a church Diane. like if you go to the, the big uh, Good Friday service here in town like they don't know how to lament no. <laughs> mostly because they don't know any like all, all the yeah. <coughs> nobody knows those songs we've in, in a way that man who spoke up there it was, he's right we're losing our, our prayer language and that that's sad we'll, we'll rediscover it but for now it's sort of going away.
7: And that gave voice to something for me that I would never do. It was extremely uncomfortable, but it was like very cathartic. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah,
6: Grandview so Covered so Baptist.
7: So. Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. Well, thank you, David. Yeah. Thanks um, for listening. I'm sure. If, uh, if anyone wants to talk to you afterwards, but uh, but thank you very much.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Oh wait, and if anybody just takes, can take five minutes to.